Good morning. Perhaps like me, you're wondering, why am I not hearing the organ this morning? It's because we've started our repair on this organ chamber wall. And I work here, so you would think I would have remembered that. But uh, we're thankful for a piano to be able to uh, accompany us as we sing praise to the Lord. We've got a Bible. Let me invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we'll read verses 15 through 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles in front of you, and you'll find the text on page 983. We are still in our series on the book of Colossians. We're going to be here for a while. We're going to spend a lot of time in this great book. And we'll see that Paul's great aim for this letter, both for the church in Colossae as well as the church in Lynchburg, is this. He wants to anchor us in the truth of Christ's supremacy and sufficiency in all of life. To root us firmly in the knowledge that Jesus is our supreme and sufficient Savior. That He is our supreme and sufficient Lord. And that He is our supreme and sufficient Head. As is often with the case uh, when it comes to Paul and his writings... His writing to the Colossians is measured, it's pointed, it, it is meant to instruct those who are in danger of being led astray. You may remember last week I mentioned the meandering spirit of the age that had crept into Colossae, and it had found its way into the church and it began to influence the church. It began to lead these young believers astray, and it did so by diminishing the view of Jesus, by truncating the gospel. And those who peddled such teaching did so authoritatively. And Paul knew that the time for action had come. The church needed an authoritative voice to speak into it. And Paul's voice was that voice. His is a voice that we need to hear from today as well. We are not immune from the meandering spirit of our own age. For the hymn writer has said that we are prone to wander. Prone to leave the God we love. And we do that because there are voices that are telling us what we want to hear. Telling us the way to find salvation. Showing us the way to self-fulfillment. It's not that we go looking for it, mind you. More often than not, it, it comes looking for us. It comes to us in our weakness. It finds us when we are in the midst of brokenness and the fallenness of our world. When heaven seems silent in our suffering, when there are, when there are more questions than there are answers. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, we begin to question God's voice. We question the truth of what He has said about Himself, about us, about the Savior who has the power to set us free, about what life in Christ should look like. So how does Paul speak into this culture? How does he address these competing voices? Well, it's not what we might expect. He doesn't attack them and show them where they're wrong. Rather, he offers up a hymn. A hymn that presents the most compelling, the most clear, the most beautiful picture of who Jesus is. A hymn that elevates the glory of Christ above all things. What does he say in this hymn? Well, let's look at our text and find out. Again, Colossians 1 beginning in verse 15. Paul writes of the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just having heard this great word read, we give you thanks and praise for its truth, and yet there is more here for us to see. And so would you open the eyes of our heart and unstop the ears um, that uh, are so easily deceived with competing voices that tell us what we ache to know, but often lead us astray. Would you lead us aright, Holy Spirit? Lead us to the truth. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. There are many things that I treasure about our worship here at Rivermont. But one of the things I treasure most is our use of hymns. They are illustrative and poetic, while at the same time they are theologically rich and formative. They are, as one writer put it, theology on fire, helping us worship God with informed minds and inflamed hearts Another quality I appreciate about hymns is that they are often very personal. They are written by people like you and like me. People who are, ex- who are seeking to interpret their struggles through God's Word rather than interpret God's Word through their struggles. Let me give you some examples. Horatio Spafford was a lawyer from Chicago who lost his fortune in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Two years later, after working hard to rebuild and restore that community, he sent his wife and four daughters to London by ship. They were to go to London to be with his friend and evangelist D.L. Moody. On the way over, their ship sank. Though his wife survived, his daughters did not. On his way to London to pick up his wife, he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. He was heartsick yet hope-filled. William Cooper, a poet and friend of John Newton, suffered from intense depression, depression so deep that he sought to take his life on several occasions. In the midst of his struggles, he wrote the hymn, Sometimes a Light Surprises. He was soul-sick, yet he was hope-filled. George Matheson was a beloved pastor in the Church of Scotland. At the age of 20, he was engaged to be married. But he began going blind. When he broke the news to his fiancée, she decided that she didn't want to spend the rest of her life with a blind husband, and so she left him. It was after that experience that he wrote one of my favorite hymns, the one the choir is going to sing later in the service, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. He was heartbroken, yet hope-filled. You see, hymns help us remember our theology. They help us to stand firm in the truth of what we know, even and especially when our world is coming unglued or it's falling apart. That had certainly happened for these Colossian believers. They were living in a culture that was spiritually adrift, a culture that increasingly rejected the uniqueness of Christ, a culture that that sought to diminish Jesus, to turn Him from being the way, the truth, and the life from simply being a way to truth and life. 
is it so different in our own culture? To embrace such a culture view, cultural view wasn't just dishonoring to Christ. It was also harmful for these young believers. To fail to see who Jesus truly is meant being cut off. Cut off from the comfort and security that comes from knowing Christ's supremacy and sufficiency in all of life. How does Paul elevate their understanding of Jesus? How does he rebuild what these false teachers have torn down? He shows them first that Jesus is the agent through whom creation was formed. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the glue which holds creation together. And thirdly, we see that Jesus is the goal for which creation was made. So Jesus is the agent, the glue, and the goal of creation. First, what does it mean that Jesus is the agent through whom creation was formed? Paul starts his hymn off by reminding us that Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the image of the invisible God. Now, the word image in the Greek is akon. Now, our English word icon is derived from that word. It it means likeness or representation. Paul is saying that Jesus is the image or the likeness of the invisible God. The God who is invisible is visible in the person and character of Jesus. In other words, when we see Jesus, we see God. In our neighborhood, there is a street that has a blind curve. The neighbors had the good sense to put a mirror at the bend of that curve for drivers to see around. And if you and I were walking on that street towards that corner, we wouldn't be able to see each other just like the cars couldn't see each other. There's a mound of dirt and trees that stand in our way. We could, however, see each other in the mirror. I could see you uh, in the mirror and you could see me in the mirror. Though you couldn't physically see me, you could see the mirror image of me. Paul is saying that Jesus is the mirror image of the God who is there, but invisible. When we see Jesus, we see God. Even more remarkable than that is that you and I have been made in God's image. We read of that creation in Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, the word for image there is the same word as our word image here in Colossians 1.15. God says, let us make man, let us make in man a mirror image of ourselves to reflect our likeness to all of creation to reveal our stamped image into his life and the life of others. You and I were created to image God to all of creation. But notice that he says, let us make man. Who is the us? It is the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All are present and active in creation. The Godhead speaks creation into being. The very words that are spoken are explosive with power. They bring order from chaos in great wisdom and wonder. God's Word, whom John identifies as Jesus, speaks creation into being. 
John writes in his opening chapter that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. Who is that Word that was present at creation? Whose creative power was spoken into being? It was Jesus Christ. He was the divine Word. The glory of Christ does not begin at Calvary. Paul says it begins with creation. We see that in verse 16, that by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him. Jesus Christ is the agent through which all of creation was made. His was the creative power through which God made something out of nothing. You and I would not exist here if it were not for Christ's power in creation. The Blue Ridge Mountains and the trees that dot it, the James River and the fish that swim in it would not be here were it not for Christ's power to create it. But He not only created the things that we can see, He created the things that we cannot see. He created thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. What exactly are these things? Well, they represent the power structures of the universe, specifically the angelic realm, both good angels and those angels who became evil. Even these powerful creatures are just that, creatures created and therefore ruled by God. Now, it is easy to think for, that these power structures have authority over our lives, whether those in the spiritual realm or even those in our temporal realm. They believe that they have power and authority over our lives, that they are the final word in our life, but that's not true. They do not create their authority. They are given their authority by Christ, whether they recognize it or not. I think sometimes we think that we have authority over our own lives, that we are in a position of authority and control. We say things like, it's my life and I'm going to do what I want to do with it. We may think that way, but as Gerald Bray commented, the only thing that we can do with our life is ruin it. We can't add it to our life, but we can shorten it. We can cut it off. We can't make things better, he says, because we are not the owner of our lives. And he's absolutely right. Because Christ created all things, everything he created is answerable to him. When he creates something, it belongs to him. He owns it. He gave life to it. He gave it a design and a purpose. It wouldn't exist unless he created it. No one else can lay claim to his creation. But more than that, he treasures that creation. He gives himself to ensure that creation works properly. He protects that creation from being stolen or harmed. He lives for that creation. He loves that creation. That is the gospel truth, my friends. As our creator, we belong to him. We are His treasure. And because this is true, it matters how we live our life, doesn't it? 
We are answerable to someone. And that someone is not us. It's not our wisdom. It's not our desires. It is our creator God in Jesus. We are answerable to him who loved us, who treasures us, who is not dependent upon any authority to accomplish his work in us. We are not our own. And praise God, we are not on our own. Secondly, what does it mean that Jesus is the glue which holds creation together? Well, Jesus' power lies not only in his power to create, but his power to sustain that creation, to hold it together and keep it going. Paul writes in verse 17 that Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. The perfect tense of the verb hold together tells us that everything has held together in him and continues to do so. Through him, the world is sustained and prevented from falling into chaos. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or image of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's not Atlas, who's got the world on his shoulder trying to hold it up, trying to bear it up. No, he He easily upholds the universe by the word of his power. The same word of power that brought creation into being keeps it going. Now that's extremely and encouraging and important for this reason. Beginning with our first parents all the way down to you and to me, we have sought to corrupt and spoil God's good creation. By our rebellion and our self-centeredness, we have tried to unravel God's good order. We have reintroduced chaos and disorder into his good world. We have done our best to get him to relinquish his grip. Praise God that he does not give us what we ask for. But instead, he preserves us. He upholds us and sustains us. Everything that happens in the world today happens because he permits it to happen. Because his power lies behind it. I mean, consider for a moment if Christ relinquished his hold on creation for a second, not a second, a millisecond, not even that, a nanosecond, what would happen? Everything would collapse. Creation would disintegrate. We would just disappear. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't use his power that way. No, he uses his power to preserve us, to preserve us in spite of ourselves. It stands to reason in my mind that since he is creator, the one who holds all things together by the power of his word, that he knows best how to fix and order our lives. And what's more, he has a vested interest in doing so. We are a costly investment in which he intends to pour his life into. That's what you do with an investment, right? You pour yourself into it. You protect it. You preserve it. When I was growing up, I collected baseball cards. I spent a lot of money buying packs of cards. I shudder to think how much of my allowance I spent buying baseball cards. And to this day, my parents can speak eloquently of of my obsession with those cards. I used to 
organized them by number and name and team. I played games with them. I traded them with my friends. I knew all the players' information. What I didn't know was just how valuable those cards could have become. I say could have become. See, by the time I realized their value, it was too late. Had I known the value of these cards, I would have taken much better care of them. I wouldn't have played with them as much. In fact, I would have protected the cards by putting in these little sleeves, right, that would keep the dust off and then, and then put that into a, a hard plastic sleeve to keep them from being bent. I would have seen this as an investment and I would, would have protected it and, and treasured it. Thankfully, Christ knows our value and he preserves and protects us. He holds our lives together. He keeps it from falling apart. And yet I realize that it doesn't always feel that way, does it? At times you may feel like your life has become something of a bad investment and not a good investment for Christ. When your life is falling apart, it may seem like Christ has stopped holding your life together. And that may be. Yet Paul wants us to know that Christ continues to hold our life together. His grip has not lessened one bit, and nor will it. He wants you to know that the Lord Jesus, the one who created and redeemed you, who holds your life together, treasures you. As our Redeemer, which we'll look at next week, He has bought you at a high price. That price was His own life. He spent everything to make you His own. You are His eternal investment. And then thirdly, what does it mean that Jesus is the goal for which creation was made? Paul has helped us see Christ's work as the creator and sustainer of creation, but he takes it one step further and tells us that Christ is the goal or the end or the purpose of creation. He says in verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. What does it mean that all things were created for him? It means that they were created for his glory. Or as Michael so aptly said, for his awesomeness. They were created to draw out our worship and praise of him. I love how John Piper frames this idea. He writes, all that came into being exists for Christ. That is, it exists to display the greatness of Christ. Nothing, nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked dictator, everything that exists, exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known, including you and the person you have the hardest time liking. Let that sink in for a moment. He's saying that all of creation exists for Christ. It all points to Him. It is all for Him. Nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. It serves a greater purpose. And that purpose is to glorify Christ. To bring into view how great, how wise, 
how powerful, how loving, how creative he truly is. That's what a good telescope does, doesn't it? It brings into focus the the grandness of the heavens. To what end? That we might glory in the one who created the universe. The one who ordered the galaxies. But the opposite is also true of the microscope. You see, it magnifies the infinite smallness of cells. To what end? That we might praise the one who has fearfully and wonderfully made us. Creation exists to bring glory to Christ. Recently, I've been spending a lot of time in the library at Liberty. And no, I'm not pursuing a degree. But when things get crazy around here and I need some quiet to write a sermon, I head to the library. So if you need me, I'll be on the second floor in the chair overlooking the lake there. Now, as incredible as that library is, it doesn't exist for itself. It exists for a greater glory. You see, its glory doesn't come from its beauty, its outer beauty, though it is it is very beautiful building. And its glory doesn't come from the robotic book retrieval system, which you've, if you've not seen, you need to go and take a, take a look at it. It's pretty awesome. It doesn't come from that. No, no, its glory comes when students sit down in one of those comfy chairs and reads a book. Or when students sit together in a study room and they work on a group project. Or when faculty give a presentation about education methods. When these things happen, the glory of the library is on full display. It is fulfilling its purpose. The same is true for creation as well. Creation, when it is functioning as it was intended to, brings glory to the Creator. It glorifies Christ's wisdom, His complexity, His mystery. And his beauty. But Christ isn't just the end of creation. Now Paul says he's not just the goal of it. He's in verse 15. He says he's the firstborn of all creation. He's not just the end of creation, but the firstborn of all creation. Now, when we hear that, we wonder, is is Paul suggesting that that Christ was a created being, that that he was somehow the, the first created being? Could that possibly be right? Well, the answer, of course, is no, that's not what he means. The context alone of this hymn suggests something completely different. After all, how could the one who is before all things and through whom all things are made be himself created? So if Christ wasn't created, what does Paul mean by this phrase? Well, Paul calls Christ the firstborn of creation because he is the father's heir. We read in Hebrews 1, 2, that, that God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. He, Christ, is preeminent over all. His is the seat of highest honor. And one day the heir will receive the full inheritance He deserves before a watching world. And on that great day, when Christ's glory appears, the church, you and I, will share His inheritance and His glory. And not only that, but Paul tells us elsewhere that when we see Christ appear, we shall be changed in an instant. The One who created us will now recreate us. We will share in His glory. And on that day, we will sing another hymn. 
We will join our voices with all of those whom Christ has redeemed in heaven. And we will sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Until that day comes, may the Colossian hymn become theology on fire in our souls. May it serve as a reminder to glorify Christ by the way that we live. May it serve as a reminder that as Christ's creation, we are His treasures. And may we trust in Him who continually holds our lives together by the power of His Word. Let us pray. Let us pray. Indeed, Lord Jesus, light our souls on fire as we marvel at Your work as Creator and Recreator of our lives. Fill us with a holy awe and trust that you hold all things together by the power of your word. Help us to experience peace and rest, knowing that we are your treasures and that everything you do for us is because of that. Guard our hearts from fear and anxiety when we experience the daily brokenness of our lives and world. Glorify yourselves through our lives. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.